Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a margarita. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a martini, and on this week's episode, we will be exploring the D.C. sniper attacks, also known as the Beltway sniper attacks. This was a series of coordinated shootings that occurred during three weeks in October 2002 throughout the Washington metropolitan area consisting of the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, and preliminary shootings that consisted of murders and robberies in several states. The snipers were John Allett Muhammad, age 41 at the time, and Lee Boyd Malvo, age 17 at the time who traveled in a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice sedan. On February 16, 2002, 21-year-old cashier Kenya Nicole Cook was shot and killed by Lee Malo at the front door of her aunt's house in Tacoma, Washington. Cook's aunt, Isa Nicole's, had been good friends with John Allen Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred, and had encouraged her to seek a divorce. On March 19, 2002, Jerry Taylor, 60, was killed by a single shot to the chest fired from long range as he practiced chip shots at a Tucson, Arizona golf course. Two deaths and four injuries followed in other states from March to July 2002. On August 1, 2002, John Gaeta, 51, was changing a tire slash by Malvo at a parking lot in Hammond, Louisiana. Malvo then shot him in the neck. The bullet exited through Gata's back and he pretended to be dead while Malvo stole his wallet. Gata ran to a service station after Malvo left and discovered that he was bleeding. He went to a hospital and was released within an hour. On September 5, 2002, at 10.30 p.m., Paul LaRuffa, a 55-year-old pizzeria owner, was shot six times at close range while locking up his Italian restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. LaRuffa survived the shooting and his laptop computer was found in Muhammad's car when he and Malvo were arrested. On September 14, 2002, 22-year-old Peter Benny Oberoi, an employee of the Hillendale Beer and Wine Liquor Store in Silver Spring, Maryland, was shot in the back outside the store. Oberoi survived the shooting. On September 15, 2002, Muhammad Rashad was shot while closing Three Roads Liquor in Brandywine, Maryland. Rashid later identified Malvo as the shooter in court. On September 21st at 12.15 a.m., 41-year-old Million A. Waldemarian was fatally shot in the head and back with a 22 caliber pistol in Atlanta, Georgia. Waldemarian was helping the owner of a Sammy's package store close up for the night when the shooting occurred. 19 hours later on the same day, Claudine Parker, a 52-year-old liquor store clerk, in Montgomery, Alabama, was shot in the chest and killed during a robbery. Her co-worker, 24-year-old Kelly Adams, 
was critically wounded with a shot through her neck but survived. Evidence found at the crime scene eventually tied this killing to the Beltway attacks and allowed authorities to identify Muhammad and Malvo as suspects. On September 23, 2002, at 6.30 p.m., 45-year-old Hong M. Ballinger was shot in the head and killed with the Bushmaster rifle in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At 5.20 p.m. on Wednesday, October 2, 2002, a shot was fired through the window of a Michael's Craft Store in Aspen Hill, Maryland. The bullet narrowly missed Ann Chapman, a cashier at the store. Since no one was injured, the shot was assumed to be random and no serious alarms were raised. However, approximately one hour later at 6.30 p.m., James Martin, a 55-year-old program analyst at the NOAA, was shot and killed at 2201 Randolph Road in the parking lot of a shopper's food warehouse grocery store located in Wheaton. On the morning of October 3rd, four people were shot dead within a span of approximately two hours in Aspen Hill and other nearby areas in Montgomery County. Another was killed that evening in the Tacoma neighborhood of the District of Columbia. At 7.41 a.m., James L. Buchanan, a 39-year-old landscaper known as Sonny, was shot dead at 11411 Rockville Pike near Rockville, Maryland. Buchanan was shot while mowing the grass at the Fitzgerald Auto Mall. At 8.12, a 54-year-old part-time taxi driver, Prem Kumar Walaker, was killed in Aspen Hills in Montgomery County while pumping gasoline into his taxi at a mobile station at Aspen Hill Road and Connecticut Avenue. At 8.37 a.m., Sarah Ramos, a 34-year-old babysitter and housekeeper, was killed on 3701 Ross Boulevard at the Leisure World Shopping Center in Norbeck. She had gotten off of a bus and was seated on a bench reading a book at the time of her murder. At 9.58 a.m., 25-year-old Lori Ann Lewis Rivera was killed while vacuuming Plymouth Grand Voyager at a Shell station at the intersection of Connecticut and Knowles Avenue in Kensington, Maryland. The snipers waited until 9.20 p.m. before shooting Pascal Charlotte, a 72-year-old retired carpenter, while he was sitting on Georgia Ave at Kamiya Road in Washington, D.C. Charlotte died less than an hour later. In each shooting, the victims were killed by a single bullet fired from some distance, and in each case, the killer struck and vanished. This pattern was not detected until after the October 3rd shootings occurred. Malvo and Muhammad started covering a wider area and taking two or three days between shootings. On October 4th, 43-year-old homemaker Carolyn Sewell was wounded in the chest at 2.30 p.m. in the parking lot of another Michael store at Spotsylvania Mall in Spotsylvania while she was loading purchases into her minivan. By this point, hundreds of journalists had converged to cover the unfolding events. School officials reassured the public that they were taking every measure possible to protect children by tightening security and canceling all outdoor activities. But when the work and school week resumed three days later, so did the shootings. 
On October 7th at 8.09 a.m., Iran Brown, a 13-year-old student, was shot in the chest and critically wounded as he arrived at Benjamin Tasker Middle School on 4901 Collington Road in Bowie, Maryland. At this crime scene, the authorities discovered a shell casing as well as a tarot card, the death card, inscribed with the phrase, quote-unquote, call me God, on the front, and on three separate lines on the back, quote, for you, Mr. Police, code, call me God, do not release to the press, end quote. Despite police efforts to honor the request not to release information about the card to the press, details were made public by WUSA-TV and then by the Washington Post just one day later. On October 9th at 8.18 p.m., 53-year-old civil engineer Dean Harold Myers was shot dead while pumping gasoline at a Sunoco gas station at 7203 Sudley Road in Prince William County, Virginia, near the city of Manassas. On the morning of October 11th, At 9.30 a.m., 53-year-old businessman Kenneth Bridges was shot dead while pumping fuel at the Exxon station off Interstate 95 in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, near Fredericksburg. On October 14th at 9.15 p.m., 47-year-old Linda Franklin, an FBI intelligence analyst who was a resident of Arlington County, Virginia, was shot dead in a covered parking lot at Home Depot in Fairfax County, Virginia, just outside Falls Church at Seven Corners Shopping Center. On October 19th at 8 p.m., 37-year-old Jeffrey Hopper was shot in a parking lot near the Ponderosa Steakhouse at State Road 54 in Ashland, Virginia, about 90 miles south of Washington. His wife, Stephanie, called out to passerbys who phoned for an ambulance, enabling Hopper to survive his injuries. Authorities discovered a forward-page letter from the shooter in the woods that demanded $10 million and made a threat to children. The next day, October 22nd, ride-on bus driver Conrad Johnson, 35, was shot at 5.56 a.m. while standing on the steps of the Grand Prix Road in Aspen Hill, Maryland. Johnson died of his injuries. While no shootings occurred on October 23rd, the day is significant for two events. First, ballistics experts confirmed Johnson as the 10th fatality in the Beltway shootings. Second, In a yard in Tacoma Park, Maryland, police searched with metal detectors for bullets, shell casings, or other evidence that might provide a link to the shooters. A tree stump believed to have been used for target practice was seized. The investigation was publicly headed by the Montgomery County Police Department and its chief, Charles Moose. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the ATF, the FBI, the U.S. Secret Service, the Virginia Department of Transportation, and police departments in other jurisdictions where shootings took place provided assistance in the investigation. By Friday night, October 4th, the five shootings on October 3rd and two on October 2nd were forensically linked to the same gun. Eyewitness accounts of the attacks were mostly confused and spotty. Hotlines set up for the investigation were flooded with tips. Early tips from eyewitnesses included reports of a white box truck with dark lettering on the outside and two men inside speeding away from the Leisure World Shopping Center. Police across the area and the state of Maryland were pulling over white vans and trucks. 
A telephone call from the shooter or shooters was traced to a payphone at a gasoline station in Henrico County, Virginia. Police missed the suspects by a matter of a few minutes and initially detained occupants of a van at another payphone at the same intersection. On the phone call, the sniper, boasting of his cleverness, mentioned a previously unsolved murder in Montgomery. This was identified as the September 21st shooting at a liquor store in Montgomery, Alabama. On October 17th, authorities said they matched Malvo's fingerprint found at the Benjamin Tasker Middle School site with one lifted from the Montgomery liquor store scene. After confirming the link between these two crimes, the FBI was able to link these fingerprints to Malvo due to his fingerprinting during a previous arrest in Washington state. After further research into Malvo's background, the police found he had close ties to John Allen Muhammad. Despite an apparent lack of progress publicly, federal authorities were making significant headway in their investigation and developed leads in Washington state, Alabama, and New Jersey. They learned that Muhammad's ex-wife, who had obtained a protective order against him, lived near the Capitol Beltway in Clinton, a community in suburban Prince George's County, Maryland, adjacent to Montgomery County. Information was also developed about an automobile purchase in New Jersey by Muhammad. Police discovered that the New Jersey license plate number issued for Muhammad's 1990 Chevrolet Caprice had been checked by radio patrol cars several times near shooting locations in various jurisdictions in several states. But the car had not been stopped because law enforcement computer networks did not indicate that it was connected to any criminal activity, and they were focused exclusively on the quote-unquote white van. Authorities were quick to issue a media alert to the public to be on a lookout for a dark blue Chevrolet Caprice sedan. For the public, as well as for law enforcement agencies throughout the region, this was a major change from the mysterious white box truck earlier sought based on reported sightings. The crime spree came to a close at 3.15 a.m. on October 24, 2002, when Muhammad and Mawu were found sleeping in their car at a rest stop off Interstate 70 near Myersville, Maryland, and were arrested on federal weapons charges. Police were tipped off by two 911 calls from individuals at the rest stop. The attacks were carried out with a stolen Bushmaster XM-15 semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle with a Bushnell holographic weapon sight effective at ranges of up to 300 meters or 984 feet which was found in the vehicle. Ballistic tests later conclusively linked the seized rifle to 11 of the 14 shootings, including one in which no one was hurt. The trunk of the Chevrolet Caprice was modified to serve as a rolling sniper's nest. The backseat was modified to allow a person to access the trunk. Once inside, the sniper could lie prone and take shots through a small hole created for that purpose near the license plate. In total, the snipers killed 17 people and wounded 10 others in a 10-month span. Investigators and the prosecution suggested on pre-mile motions that Muhammad intended to kill his second ex-wife, Mildred, who he felt had estranged him from his children. According to this hypothesis, 
the other shootings were intended to cover up the motive for the crime. Muhammad believed that the police would not focus on a strange ex-husband as a suspect if Mildred appeared to be a random victim of a serial killer. During the attacks, Muhammad frequented the neighborhood where she lived and some of the instances occurred nearby. Additionally, he had earlier made threats against her. Mildred herself said she was his intended target, claiming that when the police first approached her, one officer said, quote, Miss Muhammad, didn't you know you were the target, end quote. However, Judge Leroy F. Malik Jr. prevented prosecutors from presenting that theory during the trial, stating that a link had not been firmly established. While in prison, Malvo wrote a number of erratic diatribes about what he termed, quote-unquote, jihad against the United States. They read, quote, I have been accused on my mission. Allah knows I'm going to suffer now, end quote. Because his rants and drawings feature not only such figures as Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, but also characters from the film series The Matrix, these musings were dismissed as immaterial. Some investigators reportedly said they had all but eliminated terrorist ties or political ideologies as a motive. Nonetheless, in at least one of the ensuing murder trials, a Virginia court found Muhammad guilty of killing, quote, pursuant to the direction or order, end quote, of terrorism. During their trials in the fall of 2003 involving two of the victims in Virginia, Muhammad and Malvo were each found guilty of murder and weapons charges. The jury in Muhammad's case recommended that he be sentenced to death, while Malvo's jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole instead of the death penalty. The judges concurred in both cases. In October 2004, under a plea agreement, Malvo pleaded guilty in another case in Spotsylvania County. For another murder to avoid a possible death penalty sentence and agreed to additional sentencing of life imprisonment without parole. In March 2005, the Supreme Court ruled in Roper v. Simmons that the Eighth Amendment prohibits execution for crimes committed when under the age of 18. In light of this Supreme Court decision, the prosecutors in Prince William County decided not to pursue the charges against Malvo. Prosecutors in Maryland, Louisiana, and Alabama were still interested in putting both Malvo and Muhammad on trial. As Malvo was 17 when he committed the crimes, he could no longer face the death penalty, but still could be extradited to Alabama, Louisiana, and other states for prosecution. Muhammad's death penalty was affirmed by the Virginia Supreme Court on April 22, 2005, when it ruled that he could be sentenced to death because the murder was part of an act of terrorism. This line of reasoning was based on the handwritten note demanding $10 million. The court rejected an argument by defense lawyers that Muhammad could not be sentenced to death because he was not the trigger man in the killings linked to him and Malvo. In May 2005, Virginia and Maryland announced that they had reached agreements to allow Maryland to proceed with prosecuting charges there where the shootings mostly occurred. There were media reports that Melvo and his legal team were willing to negotiate his cooperation, and he waived extradition to Maryland. Muhammad and his legal team responded by fighting extradition to Maryland. Muhammad's legal team was ultimately unsuccessful, and extradition was ordered by a Virginia judge in August 2005. Melvo pleaded guilty to six murders and confessed to others in other states while being interviewed in Maryland and testifying against Muhammad. Malvo was sentenced to six consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, but in 2017, his sentence in Virginia was overturned after an appeal. 
On May 30, 2006, a Maryland jury found John Allen Muhammad guilty of six counts of murder in Maryland. In return, he was sentenced to six consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole on June 1st, 2006. On May 6, 2008, it was revealed that Muhammad had asked prosecutors in a letter to help him end legal appeals of his conviction and death sentence, quote, so that you can murder this innocent black man, end quote. An appeal filed by Muhammad's defense lawyers in April 2008 cited evidence of brain damage that might render Muhammad incompetent to make legal decisions and that he should not have been allowed to represent himself at his Virginia trial. In John Allen Muhammad's May 26th trial in Montgomery County, Maryland, Lee Boyd Marvel took the stand and confessed to the 17 murders. He also gave a more detailed version of the Paris plan. Marvel, after extensive psychological counseling, admitted that he was lying at the earlier Virginia trial where he had admitted to being the trigger man for every shooting. Marvel claimed that he had said this in order to protect Muhammad from a potential death sentence and because it was more difficult to obtain the death penalty for a minor. Marvel said that he wanted to do what little he could for the families of the victims by letting the full story be told. In his two days of testimony, Marvel outlined detailed aspects of all the shootings. Part of his testimony concerned Muhammad's complete multi-phase plan. His plan consisted of three phases in the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore metro areas. Phase one consisted of meticulously planning, mapping, and practicing their locations around the D.C. area. This way, after each shoot-in, they would be able to leave to quickly leave the area on a predetermined path and move on to the next location. Muhammad's goal in phase one was to kill six white people a day for 30 days. Marvel went on to describe how phase one did not go as planned due to heavy traffic and the lack of a clear shot or getaway at locations. Phase two was meant to take place in Baltimore, Maryland. Marvel described how this phase was supposed to be implemented, but was not carried out. Phase two was intended to begin by killing a pregnant woman by shooting her in the stomach. The next step would have been to shoot and kill a Baltimore police officer. Then, at the officer's funeral, they planned to detonate several improvised explosive devices, complete with shrapnel. These explosives were intended to kill a large number of police, since many police would attend another officer's funeral. The last phase was to take place during or shortly after phase two, which was to extort several million dollars from the United States government. This money would be used to finance a larger plan to travel north to Canada. Along the way, they would stop in YMCAs and orphanages, recruiting other impressionable young black boys with no parents or guidance. Muhammad thought he could as their father figure as he did with Mava. Once he recruited a large number of young black boys and made his way up to Canada, he would begin their training. Marvel described how John Muhammad intended to train boys in weapons and stealth as he had been taught. Finally, after their training was complete, Muhammad would send them out across the United States to carry out mass shootings 
and many other cities, just as he had done in Washington and Baltimore. These attacks would be coordinated and be intended to send the country into chaos that had already been built up after 9-11. At the 2006 trial, Muhammad Mao testified that the aim of killing of the killing spree was to kidnap children for the purpose of extorting money from the government and to, quote, set up a camp to train children how to terrorize cities, end quote, with the ultimate goal being to, quote, unquote, shut things down across the United States. Marvel also stated that Muhammad was driven by his hatred for white people and his belief that, quote, unquote, the white man is the devil. His plan was to kill six white people per day for 30 days, and he told Marvel he wanted to shoot pregnant white women. On September 16, 2009, the circuit court judge Mary Grace O'Brien set an execution date by lethal injection of November 10, 2009 for Muhammad. His attorney petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to stay his execution, but it was denied. They also requested clemency from Virginia Governor Tim Kaine, but this was denied as well. Muhammad was executed by lethal injection at the Greensville Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia, on November 10, 2009. The execution process began at 9.06 p.m. Eastern Time. Muhammad was pronounced dead five minutes later. It was reported that when asked if he had any last words, Muhammad made no reply. 27 people, including victims, family members, Witness his execution. Lee Boyd Mavo is currently serving multiple life sentences at Red Onion State Prison in Virginia, a supermax prison. A memorial to the victims of the D.C. area sniper attacks is located at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland. An additional memorial was constructed in 2014 in the Government Plaza of Rockville, Maryland. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the D.C. snipers? It's a very complicated case, and it's really shocking to hear the number of people that they killed and wounded. We said 27 people for truly no reason at all. I think Muhammad is was definitely like delusional. He clearly didn't want to take responsibility for what he had done manipulative which we'll get more into i would say also probably pretty like narcissistic too and just a truly dangerous individual he would do anything to help himself and like get what he wanted and we'll talk about this a little more but he definitely manipulated malvo and took advantage of him to some degree i think everything was Definitely terroristic in nature, if you ask me, especially to like build up a group of people to help you like commit more crimes and like blackmail the government or, you know, whatever exactly their plan was. It's wild to hear like how long this went on for. And like I said, how many people were affected. I didn't know that it had New Jersey ties. I thought that personally was kind of interesting. And just the like the years of legal proceedings before and after is pretty crazy too. Again, I think that Malvo was taken advantage of. I think he did show remorse and he seemed to very much cooperate and share as much as he could to put 
Muhammad behind bars. I mean, I guess you can always argue like, oh, he did it to help himself somehow. But I mean, he got all those life sentences. What else could he really, you know, he wasn't, he knew he wasn't going to get out or anything. I'm happy to hear that there are these memorials too. Like I keep saying that so many people were affected. So I, I think that is the right thing to do to memorialize these victims somehow. What are your thoughts? I agree. Muhammad was so <clears throat> delusional and we likely won't ever find out what his ultimate motives were, whether it was trying to get back at his ex-wife by creating this whole scenario where he kills a bunch of people to cover up killing her or if it was racially motivated. But I agree with you. Either way, the end result was terrorism. And he used the shooting as a way to scare the populace across several states. And so while in general, I typically don't like the death penalty. I will say the more we do these type of cases, the more I understand the pro-death penalty side, because it's not just the initial murder, which is already devastating. It's the fact that you have millions of people waking up every day, not knowing if it's safe to go outside, not knowing if it's safe to go to the store, drop their kids off at school, them go to work. There's so many elements that Muhammad essentially stole from this area for 10 months. Muhammad and Mavo at the same time. I think that hopefully Mavo is recognizing what he did was really wrong. I think he is where he needs to be. And hopefully he's going to be using the time to learn from his mistakes and hopefully be someone that can share their experiences so that others don't have to go through the same thing and that others don't turn into what he turned into, which was a, a killer. One of the often discussed elements of this case is Lee Malvo's age. Many point the finger at Muhammad for grooming him into a life of crime and radicalizing him into a path of destruction, which claimed innocent lives. Unfortunately, this is not a rare phenomenon. In many aspects of criminality, minors are used to shield adults in order to gain the protections put in place by the criminal justice system to enable minors to be rehabilitated. We are going to discuss the juvenile criminal justice system and the adults, primarily gangs, that exploit children for criminal activity. According to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, juvenile justice can be defined as a collection of state and local court-based systems whose purpose is to respond to young people who come in contact with law enforcement and are accused of breaking the law. As part of the legal process, juvenile courts hear those cases to determine whether the youth violated the law and, if so, decide on a proper response. State and local juvenile corrections agencies, including probation and residential custody, manage the rehabilitative programs, services, and sanctions provided to help young people stop further delinquent behavior. Founded in 1974, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the OJJ, 
DP is an office of the United States Department of Justice and a component of the Office of Justice Program. The office strives to strengthen the juvenile justice system's efforts to protect public safety, hold offenders accountable, and provide services that address the needs of youth and their families. Through its components, the OJJDP sponsors research, program, and training initiatives, develops priorities and goals, sets policies to guide federal juvenile justice issues, disseminates information about juvenile justice issues, and awards funds to states to support local programming. In 2018, the most recent year for which data are available, about 750,000 young people were referred to juvenile courts nationwide for delinquent offenses that violate the criminal code and another 101,000 for status offenses such as running away, consuming alcohol, or skipping school that would not be illegal if committed by adults. Of the delinquency cases, 422,000 57% were formally processed in court, of which 220,000 were adjudicated delinquent, akin to a guilty conviction in adult court. Among youth who were adjudicated delinquent, the largest share, 139,000, were placed on probation and a much smaller number, 62,000, were removed from home and placed in correctional institutions or other residential facilities. According to the ACLU, the average cost of incarcerating a juvenile for one year is between $35,000 to $64,000. In contrast, the current cost of Head Start's intervention program is $4,300 per child. They also stated the combined local, state, and federal budget to maintain the prison population was $24.9 billion in 1990 and reportedly reached $31.2 billion in 1992. The entire budget for the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which coordinates the federal response to juvenile crime, is $144 million. The juvenile justice system is a multi-stage process. There's delinquent behavior, which refers to a juvenile's behavior pattern characterized by repeated offending and is regarded mainly in its social but also criminal aspects. Referral, a young person enters the juvenile justice system with an arrest or referral. While the vast majority of referrals come from police, youth also can be referred by educators, parents, alleged crime victims, or other members of the community. Black students are more likely than white students to attend a school being patrolled by law enforcement officers, which contributes to their overrepresentation and arrest numbers. Intake or diversion. Once a young person is referred, intake workers at the juvenile court or probation agency or attorneys in the prosecutor's office determine whether the case should be formally processed in juvenile court, handled informally, or dismissed. The next stage is transfer or waiver. Also at the intake stage, youth accused of very serious offenses may be transferred or waived out of the juvenile court to stand trial as adults in criminal court. In some states, transfers can be ordered by a prosecutor, but in most states, the transfer decision is made by a juvenile court judge in response to a recommendation for transfer from the prosecution or intake worker. Many states have statutory provisions that automatically transfer youth accused of certain offenses, though some of these states also have provisions allowing for judges to transfer youth back to juvenile court in at least some cases. 
63% of juveniles transferred to criminal courts were black males, 29% were white males, 3% were black females, and 2% were white females. The next stage is detention. For cases formally processed in juvenile court, the next decision is whether to detain the young person until his or her adjudication hearing or to permit the young person to remain at home during the pre-adjudication period. And most states, judges order pre-trial detention only when the young person is deemed a danger to the community or a flight risk. In 2018, 26% of you formally petitioned in juvenile court were detained. The next stage is adjudication. In this phase, the young person may be adjudicated delinquent, roughly equivalent to being found guilty in criminal court. Alternatively, the youth may be found innocent or the charges may be dismissed. As in the adult justice system, the vast majority of cases in juvenile courts are not contested. Instead, they are resolved in plea agreements in which the youth admits to a lesser charge or in consent or similar agreements to defer prosecution while the young person adheres to specific conditions which in most cases include a period of informal probation supervision. If the case is contested and adjudication hearing takes place, a juvenile court judge rules based on the evidence presented in court by prosecutors and defense attorneys. There are no jury trials in juvenile court. Next is disposition. After a youth is adjudicated delinquent, The next step is a dispositional hearing, which is like a sentencing hearing in adult court. Typically, prior to this hearing, a probation officer examines the case, interviews the young person, and develops a recommended intervention plan. During the hearing, a judge reviews the plan, hears additional input from prosecution, defense attorneys, and perhaps the young person and his or her family, and determines the disposition of the case. Then there's juvenile corrections and probation. More than 90% of youth adjudicated delinquent are sentenced either to community supervision, better known as probation, or to residential placement. Under probation arrangements, youth on probation remain at home under the supervision of a probation officer and may be required to adhere to rules, participate in mandatory treatment activities, perform community service, and or pay restitution. Failure to comply with these rules and requirements may result in a probation violation and possible placement into a residential facility for those adjudicated and formally disposed to probation, or may result in youth being returned to court, adjudicated delinquent, and placed either on formal probation or in a residential facility for those who were diverted or placed on informal probation as part of a consent decree. Then there's also facility. Just over one-fourth of youth adjudicated delinquent in 2018 were removed from their homes and placed into residential facilities. These facilities vary widely in their characteristics. Some are large with 100 beds or more, and some are small with less than 15. Some feature correctional designs that closely mirror adult prisons, and some are group homes or residential treatment centers akin to the child welfare and mental health systems. Facilities can be locked and or fenced, while some are secured only by staff. 
They can be operated by the state or other governmental body, as well as private businesses or nonprofit organizations. And finally, we talk about aftercare. For youth who are removed from home and placed in a correctional institution or other residential facility after being adjudicated, the final phase of the process may be a period of aftercare where the young person is supervised and supported during the transition back to the community. As you can see, there is a major difference between the juvenile and adult criminal justice system, and this extends to the jails and prisons. The number of juveniles incarcerated in all U.S. adult prisons or jails declined from a peak of 10,420 in 2008 to a low of 2,250 in 2021. In 2021, local jails had custody of 1,960 juveniles, while state and federal adult prisons held 290. The most recent studies demonstrate that putting young offenders in adult prisons leads to more crime, higher prison costs, and increased violence. One study comparing New York and New Jersey juvenile offenders shows that the rearrest rate for children sentenced in juvenile court was 29% lower than the rearrest rate for juveniles sentenced in the adult criminal court. A recent Florida study compared the recidivism rates of juveniles who were transferred to criminal court versus those who were retained in the juvenile system and concluded that juveniles who were transferred recidivized at a higher rate than the non-transfer group. Furthermore, the rate of reoffending in the transfer group were significantly higher than the non-transfer group, as this was the likelihood that the transfer group would commit subsequent felony offenses. Overall, minors who serve sentences in adult facilities are 34 times more likely to reoffend than their counterparts in the juvenile justice system. In juvenile detention facilities, the stated goal is to rehabilitate the minor so that he or she can reintegrate into society. Minors are often required to be involved in furthering their education or receiving the valuable vocational training needed to function once they have fulfilled their sentence. In contrast, many adult prison facilities are more punitive in nature and are intended to protect the public from adult offenders. Children who serve sentences in adult facilities are significantly less likely to receive vocational training and education than minors housed in juvenile detention facilities. This makes reintegration into society difficult, despite the fact that most juvenile offenders are still very young when they are released. 80% of minors convicted as adults are released before their 21st birthday, and 95% are out before turning 25. There is a real danger in pools when children are placed in adult prisons. Children in adult institutions are 500% more likely to be sexually assaulted, 200% more likely to be beaten by staff, and 50% more likely to be attacked with the weapon than juveniles confined in a juvenile facility. They are 36 times more likely to commit suicide if housed in an adult jail or prison. Children often act recklessly, which can lead to more severe punishment in adult facilities, including the use of solitary confinement, which has been shown to have long-term negative effects. 
before we get into the specifics of criminality and minors and the adults that groom them into it, Jenny, what are your overall thoughts on the juvenile criminal justice system and how it handles juvenile offenders? I thought everything was really interesting to hear. I definitely didn't know what, you know, like a lengthy process it can be or all of the specifics. I like seeing that there's this emphasis placed on like rehabilitation, treatment plans, positive intervention, intervention and aftercare. So juveniles don't go on to commit more crimes or worse crimes. I do wonder like how seriously it's taken because it, it does kind of seem like a personalized approach and I cannot imagine it's up to like what it should be with every single juvenile offender. I would kind of be curious to hear more about like specifics for these treatment plans. I think it's also probably better to have youth in more like smaller facilities that feel more like a house than an adult prison. I mean, I guess to depending maybe on the crime committed, maybe it would be better to be in like a larger like prison like facility. But I feel like all around, it would be better for youth to be in smaller homes, again, like that personalized care, as long as it can be appropriately given. But of course, I'm sure there is a lot of money in that and people, you know, systems don't want to pay for that. This evidence that was shown for like how important the juvenile justice system is or for like youth to go through like the family court system rather than the criminal court, it was really shocking to hear. And then just hearing the statistics on when children are in adult prisons, I mean, that's like reason enough, all of these statistics to not like ever put a child in an adult facility again. I mean, 500 times more likely to be sexually assaulted that's insane and more likely to be beaten by the staff who would hopefully know that this is a a juvenile. It's mind blowing. Like it's hard to believe, but I mean, it goes to show, I think it's another reason that we would need prison reform and justice reform. What are your thoughts? I definitely agree with you. There is no reason why a child should be placed in an adult prison. In almost any other circumstances, we wouldn't even think about that. And I think that the way the juvenile criminal justice system is set up now, in a way that it's focused on rehabilitation, it's focused on education, it's focused on providing the juvenile with life skills, is a really important aspect of the program. And I think it's one of the reasons why recidivism has been lowered in the last decade or so when it comes to juvenile offenders, because you have a system that not only is providing them with, you know, a multi-step process, they know what's coming up, they know what to expect, but it's also that follow-up. It's having someone who is maintaining a good record of what's going on with the youth. What are some things outside of the criminal justice system that can help them? What pitfalls have we seen in juveniles before that can help guide our messaging currently. The fact that there is a federal agency dedicated specifically to this is definitely a good sign. And hopefully as they continue with their research, they're able to continuously 
refine the program so that it's even better as time goes forward. I do think it's interesting that most of the cases are formally processed in court. And out of that, about half are found to be delinquent or guilty. I wonder how those stats changes based on the demographics of the individual juvenile and the geographic location of the crime. I think that would be interesting to parse out to see if changes would need to be made on a smaller level versus doing everything nationally. When comparing the cost of Head Start to the entire jail and prison population, it's so frustrating because education is so necessary and is one of the ways that people can avoid going to jail. So the fact that we have a system that invests more in prisons and education just shows why the a school-to-prison pipeline is alive and well in many areas of the United States. Some of the more common juvenile offenses include theft, larceny, alcohol offenses, disturbing the peace, drug offenses, vandalism, assault, robbery, criminal trespass, harassment, fraud, burglary, loitering, possession of stolen property, possession of weapons, and crimes committed on behalf of gangs. Certain juvenile offenses, such as sex crimes, can carry lifelong registration consequences or may add, quote-unquote, strikes or other sentencing enhancements that can affect the minor for the rest of his or her life. Additionally, juveniles may be prosecuted for conduct that is prohibited solely based on their age alone, which is commonly called a, quote-unquote, status offense. A status offense is an act that is considered a violation of law only because the person accused of the conduct is a minor. For example, although consuming alcohol and using marijuana is legal in a number of jurisdictions for adults, the same cannot be said for juveniles. Some of these status offenses include possession of marijuana, possession of alcohol, possession of cigarettes or tobacco products, skipping school, violating local curfew hours, and driving with any measurable amount of blood alcohol. In a given year, approximately 400,000 juveniles are arrested, charged, or detained by police due to a status offense. This shows that about 20% of juvenile offenses are for violations that an adult based solely on age, would not be prosecuted for. Some of the common factors that are considered include in juvenile cases is the severity of the crime, the minor's behavior, and the minor's criminal history or lack of one. Additionally, the court will consider the amount of evidence against the juvenile and whether the juvenile's parent or guardian is able to regulate the juvenile's behavior. One of the most common juvenile crimes involve property crimes committed at school. This includes a wide variety of theft crimes, including grand theft and petty theft. Another common juvenile offense occurring at schools is vandalism. Minors often may be involved in the destruction of school property or property owned by other students or teachers. After property crimes, assault-related offenses are the next most frequently committed crimes. These offenses can range from minor fights between fellow students to serious battery offenses committed on teachers or other school personnel or offenses involving dangerous or deadly weapons. While many simple assaults are misdemeanor-level crimes, 
offenses in which the victim suffered seriously bodily injury or offenses involving use of a weapon or object can elevate the case to a felony. These offenses are treated very seriously by juvenile court judges and minors for whom a juvenile petition is sustained can be sentenced to probation at home or at a juvenile camp away from home. Another major category of juvenile offenses are drug-related. One of the most frequent drug crimes is simple possession, where the minor is called possession a relatively small amount of a drug. This can include illegal street drugs, such as heroin, cocaine, or ecstasy, as well as legal drugs for which the juvenile does not have a valid prescription, such as Xanax or Vicodin. Like we stated earlier, while marijuana has been significantly decriminalized, a juvenile can still be cited for marijuana possession, and this can lead to an arrest and criminal charges. Many minors are also arrested for DUI offenses. Unlike most adults who are permitted to drive as long as their blood alcohol levels are below 0.08%, many states have a zero-tolerance approach to kids and impaired driving. This means that having any measurable amount of alcohol in the minor system can result in a criminal and administrative penalties. The last category is major felonies, including murder and sexual assault, often related to gang activity. In some states, minors who commit certain violent crimes under extenuating circumstances are presumed to be unfit for juvenile treatment. Each year since 2000, youths accounted for 10% of all murder arrests. Juveniles account for more than one-third, 35.6% of those known to law enforcement that have committed sexual offenses against other minors. Child-on-child -child sexual abuse comprises more than one-quarter, 25.8% of all sex offenses. Gangs often recruit children in their neighborhood. 16% of youth gang members were younger than 15, and 34% were between the ages of 15 and 17. Let's dive further into the disturbing connection between gangs and children. Most gang members tend to be adolescents or young adults. However, recent trends indicate that children are being recruited into gangs at a much earlier age, some when they are in elementary school. In one example for the Black Disciples gang, their average gang membership age is 12 years old. Gangs can include people of every gender, race, culture, and socioeconomic group. Traditionally, gang activity has been confined to cities, but gangs are no longer just in large cities. They also exist in smaller towns and rural areas. Some children and adolescents are motivated to join a gang for a sense of connection or to define a new sense of who they are. Others are motivated by peer pressure and need to protect themselves because a family member also is in a gang or to make money. Gangs exploit this and use children to commit crimes, often using the child as a drug runner, police lookout, or even hired gun. Risk factors that can contribute to the risk that children and adolescents join a gang include growing up in an area with heavy gang activity, a history of gang involvement in the family, a history of violence in the home, too little adult supervision, unstructured free time, particularly during after school hours and on the weekends, a lack of positive role models and exposure to media that glorifies gang violence, 
low self-esteem, sense of hopelessness about the future because of limited educational or financial opportunity, and underlying mental health issues or behavioral disorders such as oppositional defiant disorder and attention deficit or hyperactivity disorder. One of the worst effects of gang membership is the exposure to violence. Gang members may be pressured to commit a crime to become part of the gang. Consequences of gang membership may include exposure to drugs and alcohol, age-inappropriate sexual behavior, difficulty finding a job because of a lack of education and work skills, removal from one's family, imprisonment, and even death. Unfortunately, this type of manipulation is not limited to gangs, as was the case with John Muhammad and Lee Malwa. Because adolescents are more vulnerable to peer pressure, coercive situations have a more substantial effect on their decision making. This vulnerability is especially relevant in situations where an adult manipulates a juvenile into committing a crime because the minor's brain development combined with the adult's coercion makes it very difficult for a minor to make a rational and well-thought-out decision. The process by which this happens is known as grooming. While grooming is often thought of in a sexual context, it can also be romantic, financial, or for criminal or terrorism purposes and can target both children and adults. The common aspect is that a perpetrator manipulates the victim by building trust and rapport. The key to grooming is a power dynamic within the relationship based on age, gender, physical strength, economic status, or another factor. Because people tend to see grooming mainly linked to child sexual abuse, Many often fail to identify victims and other forms of grooming, even though they are clearly being coerced and manipulated. This is evident in responses to criminal exploitation of young people involved in county line drug trafficking, where gang members use the same methods used by sexual groomers to Uh, manipulate young people into criminal activity. Law enforcement often doesn't identify victims as being groomed, treating them as criminals instead. Anne Coffey of all-party parliamentary group on runaway and missing children stated, quote, young people who are groomed into drug running by adults are being exploited in the same way as those enticed into sexual activity. They are vulnerable and need our support. End quote. She continued, quote, we mustn't make the same mistakes again that were made in the early child sexual exploitation scandal where the girls were blamed for their own exploitation and for making a quote unquote lifestyle choice, end quote. She concluded with, quote, we need to change our attitudes. We don't yet have a system that can deal with victims who have also become offenders, end quote. In response, many jurisdictions including internationally, are increasing the penalties of charges related to contributing to the delinquency of a minor. In 2017, Australia introduced Fagan's Law. It aims to target individuals who lure children into a life of crime. These offenses carry a prison sentence of up to 10 years, and places like Ireland are looking to adopt similar laws. Jenny, what are your overall thoughts on juvenile criminality and the prevalence of adults using minors in their criminal acts? 
I thought it was pretty interesting to hear the breakdown of the types of crimes committed. I don't think any of that was really surprising. I do generally, when I think of like juvenile offenders, I do often think of like gang activity and how it has like such serious repercussions on the entirety of someone's life. And to hear that like gangs are recruiting people that are even younger is so upsetting to hear. And then to go off of that, it really does make me so mad seeing adults groom children and teens to commit crimes and manipulate them into, you know, making them feel like they have some kind of support system that they'll be there for them. Um, It really is infuriating for me. And I liked what Ann Coffey had said about we need to like be more understanding of how children and teens are like exploited in this manner. Because I think so often, like when someone on a teenager or someone commits a crime, like, Oh, well they should have known better. Yes, they should know better, but that's not necessarily how like a youth mindset works. And if you have these adult influences in your life, like egging you on and telling you like, you're going to be like, it's cool to do it or it's okay to do it. You're going to help us out to do it then like, it's not necessarily easy for them to see right from wrong. Um, So I think that should be taken into consideration. And I'm all for the US adopting something like Australia's Fagan's Law. I think we should have stuff like that set up in place. Because oftentimes, like, like we've been saying, minors are able to kind of like be rehabilitated easier, maybe with like proper education and life skills and support. But in some of these cases, like these minors lives are ruined forever. So yeah, I think people need to be held accountable for, you know, when that happens. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I think that as time goes on, and we learn more about the cognitive abilities of minors, we learn that they don't have the skills necessary, no matter how adult they think they are. They don't have the skills necessary to see what the actual end results of a bad decision are going to be. And I feel really bad for youth that end up having their entire lives ruined because of a bad decision they made. And that is even more frustrating when it was an adult that led them to that. And I definitely agree with her. In so many different contexts, people are only able to see an individual as either a victim or an offender. But in these situations where you have an adult using the innocence of youth, using the public's general perception that juveniles ought to be rehabilitated and they exploit that you have a situation where the juvenile is a victim they're a victim of the other adult they're a grooming victim but we also need to make sure that we're addressing the offense that they have committed as well and hopefully as time goes on and more research is put into it we can find a good solution for that conundrum that we're in. I definitely would love something like Fagan's Law to come to New Jersey and the wider United States. I think that in most cases, having a specific law is necessary 
versus trying to fit newer crimes into old definitions of crimes. One of the things when looking at the connection between gangs and children, the fact that the Black Disciples' average gang membership was 12 years old was one of the most shocking things that I had read on this. I couldn't believe it, but it just shows that they know exactly what they're doing. They are, again, removing the innocence that comes with being a kid and comes with being able to be carefree before you have to start making life decisions. And it's a shame that although in general the numbers are going down, there's still a significant amount of juveniles that are having to learn the hard way about the results of their criminality. When it comes to the conversation of uh, grooming, I would hope that more people start seeing it in its broader sense. Of course, the sexual grooming of children, are it's disgusting, and I'm not saying we should not think about that, but just broadening our horizons so that the other type of grooming is not missed because they're victims as well, and we need to make sure that we are getting them the help that they need and separating them from a very dangerous influence in their lives. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the DC snipers. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.